HVAC 360, episode number nine. My interview with Jim Wickard. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of HVAC 360. I'm your host, Matt Nelson. I want to thank you for joining me. We keep growing this every week and uh, week in and week out, and that is absolutely fantastic. This week has been very special to me because I started uh, doing what one of the things that I set to do in the beginning when I did the prologue is talking with building professionals, engineers, in this case, uh, a consulting engineer from Cleveland, Ohio, Jim Wickard. Now, Jim's been doing this for about 50 years, and he is really one of the icons in Cleveland as far as engineering goes. He is very respected within the community, and I loved to, you know, I loved my interview with him, and I, I just wanted to be able to share that with everybody out there. So I would like to thank Jim personally for taking his time out of his busy schedule to be able to sit down and talk with me uh, about, you know, a little bit about his background, some of his experiences, and just, you know, a couple, a couple of different things that uh, uh, I threw in there just, just for fun. One point of business I'd like to do uh, before we get started here is anybody who's accessing the show from iTunes, I I would really love uh, a review in iTunes. I'd like, if you're listening to iTunes, uh, to rate us. Um, if you haven't done that through iTunes. Uh, that's my one my one thing that you might consider if you if you don't know that you know the, when an episode comes up. Uh, typically, I like to do these every uh, issue them every Sunday night. Uh, sometimes I I can achieve that, but you know sometimes my day job gets in the in the uh, into things. So I uh, iTunes gives you an opportunity to really to be able to download these on a, on a, on a um, a pretty consistent basis. You don't have to necessarily have to go to the website to be able to listen to it, uh, even though that's definitely an option for you. So, please, anybody who's living on, uh, listening to us via iTunes, I would love some feedback to get that up on my profile. Uh, one of the things that I've been, I've been, you know, I would just love to see. Having said that, I think that we've prepped it enough, and so I'll get out of your way. And let's get on with this interview. We are talking here with uh, Jim Wickard uh, of Wickard Engineering. How are you doing, Jim? Pretty good, and you? Uh, excellent. Good. Well, thanks for sitting down uh, chatting with us a little bit. Um, we, I just wanted to, get, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, kind of your background and a little bit about uh, Wickard Engineering in general. And, you know, as, as, as talking with... Uh, people uh, around the industry, I think that when you t look at the people that uh, are, are practicing in, in the Cleveland area, your name would come up uh, again and again, I'm sure, in, in conversations and lists of uh, uh, people that, that are respected and kind of iconic in, in, in and around the industry. So I just wanted to have a chance to, to sit down and, and find out the, the real deal behind, uh, you know, who Jim Wickard is and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, some of, the, some of your thoughts. So I guess one of the first things that, that I'd start off with is what is, you know, when, when did you want to become an engineer? What was your, what was your? Well, I probably got, I really just drifted in that direction, encouraged by my father, and probably developed in high school when I began to take uh, 
the courses that were necessary for engineering entry. Um, and I uh, really didn't have any other second choice. So <laughs> this was it. <laughs> so so uh, engineering, yeah, so that was, uh, that, was, that was what you wanted to do. You're pretty much, you know. Yeah, my, my father was a blue-collar electrician. And, okay. Uh, among that sort of person, why engineering was the way to, to get out of a tough job. Oh, sure, sure. You use your mind instead of your back. That's yeah. always, always the uh, one thing that I, I think about engineering yeah. and doing. Um, so going through, uh, uh, you know, you went to, uh, you went to Case. Yes. It was your, was your alma mater, Case Western Reserve yes. University. Um, Case School of Applied oh, Science at that point. Uh, yes. <laughs> So I've, I've I've come against the uh, the Case Institute uh, versus Western Reserve uh, uh, kind of opinion. But uh, uh, now, what made you choose Case? Uh, well, it was local. I could ride the streetcar to college, and uh, there were two engineering schools in Cleveland, and uh, Case was my first choice, um, and uh, I scored well on an entrance exam. <laughs> So I got in, and tuition at that time was $187.50 a semester Ooh. for 21 credits. <laughs> a far cry from what it is today, yes. I, I know. Um, so what, what were some of the classes that you took at, at Case being, being an engineer? I mean, was it, was it wide open, or did you have to specialize right away, or how, how did that? Well, you began to specialize. Uh, well, you had to choose a department uh, in your sophomore year, and then in your... Uh, junior year, or actually I think in the sophomore year, you began to uh, uh, specialize in a particular field, and uh, my field at the time was called heat and power, and uh, we had a lot of how to design courses. Uh, I took heat transfer, heating, ventilating, and air conditioning, uh, refrigeration, internal combustion engines, and instrumentation and automatic control. And uh, Internal combustion engines was particularly valuable because we studied how thermal systems adapt to varying loads, which uh, we really didn't get in everything else. We just designed everything else for the maximum, and, uh, <laughs> and ICE was a good introduction to something else. Was that was that one of your favorite courses there? Is it? Well, it was an interesting course. It was an interesting course. What would you say your favorite would be? Oh, probably uh, air conditioning. So they actually refrigeration, yeah. They actually taught that at Oh yes, uh, yes. That's interesting. Uh, Bill Bryan was the lead professor in that area and uh, he was a fellow of Ashray. He uh, he edited the fundamentals volume one time, one cycle. So he was a prominent person. Right. So I guess was was that the class that kind of made you want to go into HVAC engineering or what how how did you come upon that uh well, I, I found thermodynamics was easy and for me in uh, my sophomore year, probably, and um, in physics. And um, from that point on, uh, that was kind of the direction that I, I felt most comfortable in. And then uh, HVAC gave me the opportunity to indulge the fascination with buildings that I'd had since I was a small boy. So this worked out really well for me. So where do you where do you start off? You know, you know, coming out of college, you. What, where'd, you, uh, where'd you land your first job? Well, my first job was uh, at Cincinnati Air Conditioning. Uh, that, they were a design-build contractor and a carrier distributor in 1950. Uh, they did both air conditioning and, and commercial and industrial refrigeration. And uh, an acquaintance from college, Paul Menster, had graduated a little earlier than me, and 
he had become the corporate uh, liaison between carrier and carrier's distributors and dealers in this region. He knew of the opening in Cincinnati, and he nominated me for the job, and so I was very pleased to get it. Excellent. Um, so what what did you uh, what did you like about uh, uh, you know I guess what, what did you like about the job when you when you first started? I mean, well, it was uh, the really good thing was that uh, I had two immediate bosses, uh, Ivan von Walter, who was the refrigeration department head, and uh, Bob Howard, who was the air conditioning department head. So I had two guys working with me one on one. And uh, that was a great learning experience. It really was. Excellent. Um, so, what would you what would you see? Uh, you know, as far as uh, from your experiences so far, what would you? How would you recommend that that uh, um, students get involved in, in HVAC? I mean, what would what would you kind of what advice could you give them? Well, I I would advise them to try for two early jobs in succession. Uh, one would be a, a one-on-one apprenticeship with an experienced engineer, preferably in a design-build firm to learn the practical basics. And uh, then secondly, uh, a job in a large architect and engineering firm to learn how large projects are designed and coordinated. So, so when you uh, have uh, you, when you get your first job, taking a look and, and, and knowing what you know now about the industry, what what are some of the advantages uh, that uh, uh, you know students can have coming into the HVAC field? Well, I was briefly a rocket scientist. Uh, I was drafted into the army in 1951, and I uh, ended up uh, being assistant cooling section chief on Werner von Braun's uh, rocket development team at Huntsville, Alabama during 1951 and 52. And I was bored stiff. Uh, HVAC provides a lot more opportunity for the exercise of independent judgment. And uh, you get the regular satisfaction of seeing your completed designs work. Okay, excellent. so what were your what were some of your most memorable moments uh, as a as a young engineer? Oh, this was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I can't think of anything specific particularly, but it was a growing experience. Yeah. Okay. Um so knowing what you know now, would you do anything differently about uh, you know, your your career? Well, over my career, I I think I would have been better off if I had been more patient and not jumped around so much. But on the other hand, uh, I wouldn't have had the great variety of different experiences that I've accumulated. So, what at what point uh, did you say, you know, what I've had enough? I've, I'm I'm assuming you, you, I guess you worked at uh, a, different A and E firms, and uh, um, you worked for Cincinnati uh, Air Conditioning. Um, well, altogether, I think I've worked at ten different organizations. <laughs> So you had you had a number of number of uh, organizations under your belt, and you yeah. what what was the impetus to, to actually start your own shop? Well, in 1975, I realized that moving from job to job had brought me to a dead end, and so I I just decided I needed to do my own thing. And where did you where did you decide to to shut up, set up shop? Well, the old arcade, which is now the Regency Hyatt Hotel. <laughs> um. What were I mean? Did you did you start it with uh, any sort of plan in mind? Did you just I mean, were you, there were any prospects that you had uh, that were uh, uh, you know that you had lined up to kind of make this transition a little bit easier? Did you kind of quit cold turkey and decide to? Well, I didn't have any uh, jobs in in mind, but uh, over the years I've made a lot of friends among architects, and 
they became my first clients, and uh, uh, I was fortunate in that when I called on them, why well, I got work before I could really get organized to do the work. So it was a it was a good time. So what uh, what was your what was your first uh, um, office like? I mean, can you describe it? Well, it was seven foot wide and maybe uh, twenty feet long, and I uh, had to buy some chairs and uh, and. Uh, some steel shelving for catalogs, and uh, I built my own drafting tables out of flush solid core doors. So that was the beginning of it. So how long did you stay like a, a one-man shop? Oh, I moved out of that office after the first year into a larger space, and I think we began to pick up uh, uh, some other people. My wife joined me as administrator at that point, and... Uh, um, we began to. I, I don't remember who was my first employee, but uh, uh, I picked up Tony Zagara fairly early, and uh, Tony stayed with me for over thirty years. So. Wow! Wow! Um, I guess what was what was uh, the, what were some of your your favorite jobs? Looking back, well, when I was at Osborne Engineering, I designed the mechanical systems for the Robert F. Kennedy Stadium in Washington, and and the Nuclear Research Center campus for Union Carbide uh, up the river from uh, New York City. And uh, when I was at Dalton Dalton Associates, uh, I made three trips to West Africa to gather information for the design of projects. What was what, were, what projects were those? Well, the big project was the University of Liberia, which um, uh, never really went ahead. But um, uh, at that point in time, why uh, we were in a competition with the Russians for prestige in Africa, and uh, um, Liberia was seen as uh, under the influence of the United States, and um, uh, it wasn't as well advanced as a lot of the other former colonial uh, nations, and so we felt we had to play catch-up, and so we were trying to develop this university. So when you went, when, it, when you went over there, I guess, what were, what were some of the things that you were trying to, trying to figure out? Well, the big thing was to, uh, for the engineers on the team, was to figure out how to build their particular areas of work uh, in that uh, economy mm-hmm. and uh, what the materials were, what the skills were. Um, uh, there were no uh, uh, no weather statistics for the area, so I ran my sling psychrometer regularly to, <laughs> to develop some data about what design conditions were. <laughs> and... Um, um, there were no uh, the, the telephone system only worked uh, when we had a sunny day and um, uh, the sun only shined in Liberia and Monrovia, Liberia about three or four days a year um, the weather generally was just a continual drizzle and um, uh, it was almost constant uh, at about 75 degrees and about 90% relative humidity so uh, uh, I think I've lost the train of my thought there. But um, uh, so when you, I guess, when you're designing a system like that, you know, uh, utilities were a big thing. I mean, the, obviously, it had to be, you know, a little bit. Well, there there wasn't much in the way of utilities. There was some electricity, and it uh, it worked. Um, um, well, most of the time, but not always. Um, 
the the problem with the, the telephone system was that there was no telephone directory too, and uh, and uh, so if you were going to find out anything, why you uh, uh, you just had to go and knock on doors, and uh, so we developed a network and uh, had a staff meeting every uh, every day, and everybody passed on their leads to the other people. <laughs> so we uh, we went around and learned things. Yeah. So it, it, in Cleveland, when you when you talk about uh, you know, I know that a lot of the existing companies now first um, you know started up. I guess who are who are some of the manufacturers reps that you had dealt with on a, on a regular basis back in the back when you first started up? Well, the uh, uh, there were firms that are no longer around, like in the air conditioning market, like Worthington. And uh, American Standard, uh, uh, Westinghouse, uh, Chrysler, mm-hmm. um, uh, but um, I think the big difference was that uh, the manufacturers' reps had time to teach young engineers. And uh, I remember Walter Rogers of Thermal Products, who taught me about air distribution, and Jim Atchison from Iron Fireman, who taught me about burners. And they would come in and spend hours with young engineers, just going over questions and an- answering questions and lecturing. <laughs> it was a great experience that I don't think exists much anymore. So they really provided a wealth of knowledge to, yeah. to younger engineers. And the economy just doesn't afford that anymore. Right. Everything's a little bit uh, more rushed. Yes. So what, uh, I guess... Uh, as far as uh, good stories that, that you may have over the years, uh, being involved in, in engineering that uh, you can possibly relate to us and stories that where you have to keep the names well, nameless. Any, any, any good ones? I don't think I have any good ones at the moment. <laughs> so I guess what, uh, when you talk about practicing engineering, what, what do you think most of the engineers uh, miss? Well, they should have a better knowledge of how contractors go about doing their work. Uh, I think uh, a lot of engineers never really understand how a, what a contractor does and how he goes about doing it. They don't get out in the field enough. They don't actually have the experience of working in a contractor's office. Uh, the other thing is uh, they miss good relations between architects and engineers. Um, the two professions have two different sets of cultural values, and neither understands the other very well, and uh, so it it creates problems. So I know that uh, you, you'd mentioned your sling psychrometer, and I, I guess describe for people who don't know what a, a sling psychrometer is, what what it actually is, and and how it works. Well, it's two thermometers in one uh, frame that has a sling handle on it, and. Uh, the longer of the two thermometers, or the one that sticks out longer, uh, has a, a, a cloth wick, uh, a woven wick around it, and you dip that in water, and then you spin the thing, and uh, the wetted bulb on the one thermometer uh, cools by evaporation, and um, this produces a temperature called the wet bulb temperature, uh, which is a function of the humidity in the air. And uh, by taking the wet bulb temperature reading and the dry bulb reading, which is the other thermometer, you can put those on a psychrometric chart and determine all the psychrometric properties of the air. Mm-hmm. 
So, and most people would most people would relate the, the the dry bulb temperature to what they'd see on a standard thermometer or what they'd you know measure yes. every day, what they what they'd feel. Um, so, uh, you, I've I've heard stories about the uh, the sling psychrometer in uh, in in growing up in your. Uh, uh, in the industry, can you tell me a little bit about wh- how you use the sling psychrometer and, and if that was typical? Well, of course, in Africa, I used it to develop weather data. But uh, in Cleveland, uh, we got some jobs where uh, the temperature had to be uh, held absolutely constant, regardless of weather conditions. Uh, one particularly was a an instrument calibration room for a major research laboratory, and. Um, so to find out what the worst possible weather conditions would be, I used to, uh, whenever the weather got really demanding, to I'd go out and run my sling psychrometer, and I plotted all those uh, extreme conditions on a psychrometric chart. So uh, uh, the extreme conditions can be uh, way above normal design and even above what is considered the normal maximum. So what do so you you had at the time ASHRAE standards, um, you know some you know wet bulb, dry bulb, whatever yes. the, whatever the standards were, but you used that in extreme in extreme yes. conditions. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I had, I had heard stories about uh, you know this was this was the job that was like if you were an entry level person, you're like okay, you go stand out and and and, and swing well, the sling psychrometer out in the yeah, uh, everybody should do that. One of my uh, Real concerns is that all the electronic humidity sensors drift out of calibration, and they can be way out of calibration, and you may not know it. Uh, I think one of the first experiences I had in my first job at Cincinnati Air Conditioning, which did a retail business, too, of window units and all that sort of thing, uh, they had a counter. And on the counter, they had humidity sensors, little round balls, about 12 of them lined up for sale. And they were all different. And they registered anywhere from 20% to 70%. (laughs) So so much for those primitive humidity sensors. Oh, man. Yeah, and you know, I mean, the sling psychrometers, they're still around. You know, and they yeah. and I, they're not. I don't think they're fairly. Exp- I don't think they're expensive. They're not expensive, and uh, they do give you a pretty firm base uh, uh, humidity uh, measurement. So there's your tip for the day. Um, now, as far as uh, uh, one of the uh, some of the other stories that I've heard is uh, your specifications. Now, I know specifications in the construction industry. Obviously, typically, when you have uh, you know you have your drawing set, you have your specs. That makes up kind of your construction documents, but your specifications uh, really can vary widely from from engineering house to, to engineering house. So, specificate. What does specifications mean to you? Well, uh, they're called the uh, the um, well. There's a name for it that architects use: uh, project manual or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, it really uh, provides certain guidance, but uh, when I was at the Austin Company in 1954, I, I was delegated to work with uh, an architect named Francis W. Rag that the Austin Company had hired from the U.S. Bureau of Standards to develop a short and simple and understandable master specification. Uh, Frank was one of the founders of the Construction Specification Institute, and he was a genius of simplification. He drilled a few maxims into me. 
specifications should be specific. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> Eliminate unnecessary words. And the best model specification is a one-page cooking recipe. Say what is to be done, list the ingredients, and describe how they should be put together. Frank, frankly, would be appalled and saddened by today's 500-page products of the current master specs. Specifications are a tool to be used by contractors to build a building. They're not an end in themselves, and long, wordy specifications do not make anybody safe. Too often, master specs are not thoroughly edited to be specific, and they contain contradictory and inappropriate information. Uh, long specifications, in my experience, are generally not read by the bidders and the contractors. They're only read carefully by attorneys and expert witnesses after problems arise. Like it or not, uh, specifications are also frequently used by contractors to define their subcontracts. Each section should clearly define what work is included in that section and what related work is not part of that section. Misunderstandings lead to lawsuits and I still work long and hard to make my specifications shorter and clearer. So that was so so you developed a a uh, affinity for you know good specifications and that really you uh you kept working at uh, them constantly. And they should be shorter and shorter and shorter and um uh the more words you write the more source of confusion you can get into. And um uh, the thing that's happening today is that the master specs are so huge that they simply are not edited. Uh, maybe uh, a number of years ago, I um, I was working for a major uh, health center, and um, which was a tertiary care hospital and a complete range of uh, health education facilities, medical school, and all the rest. And uh, the facilities director uh, was telling me a story one time about. Uh, how uh, they had an operating room and they got a specification from an architect and he had included the baptismal font in the specs. And the facilities manager said that was the last time we used that architect. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it, um, now, do you, do you find that, uh, you know, at least, in, at least in my experience, I don't know if you, would, if you would agree with this, but a lot of the specifications, it's not necessarily the favorite thing for engineers to do. And typically, if you get into, say, uh, I guess on the on the other side of the aisle, in the architect's sort of venue, you'll typically have slightly larger offices where somebody might be specialized to handle specifications. That doesn't typically uh, ring true with uh, with the engineering world. Would you would you agree with that? I would agree with that. <laughs> so that's that's kind of part of the reason it's 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 the uh, uh, um, job nobody likes to do. But yet, uh, everybody seems to uh, need to rely on it when when troubles arise. So that was uh, particularly attorneys. <laughs> so I guess when did you when did you start? You know, speaking of expert witnesses and attorneys, when did you start first? Kind of going away from uh, doing um, uh, design work to uh, becoming an expert witness. Well, when I was working at Osborne Engineering in the late 1950s, I got into investigating system operating problems uh, occasionally. And then uh, I was at the Austin Company in the 1960s. Uh, Austin is a design-build firm, and uh, that means undivided responsibility to make things work. And uh, 
they had a fellow, uh, Paul Saylor, who uh, had the job to resolve all the mechanical and electrical problems that arose in the field. And uh, when Paul died suddenly about 1965, I was assigned his tasks. Um, but I don't think that any of the problems that we had at that time ever became a lawsuit because we got them straightened out early. Um, I was first asked to serve as an expert witness about 1976 after I'd opened my own practice. Okay. Um, so I guess... Uh when you when you talk about being an expert witness, obviously there's there's something that went wrong with the design. What would you you know? I would assume that it would be because of uh, a poor design. Um, is this typically the case, or what? What do you think typically the cases are? No, I don't think it's uh, uh, not usually poor design. Um, uh, the problems I think arise from poor communication, from delays, uh, poor coordination, among other things. Um, the sick jobs usually have multiple causes. So you think that, uh, I mean, if, if you were to give some advice to engineers to avoid litigation, avoid these kind of problems, you would say, you know, increase your communication, you know, use that as a, as a focus, or what would you? Well, my first business attorney was Bill Taft, who uh, incidentally was also my best English teacher. But he gave good advice. He said, if all parties in an activity understand everything perfectly clearly up front, then you don't get in trouble. And this is easier said than done, but engineers should maintain good communication and uh, strive to produce brief, clear specifications and accurate, complete drawings. Um, complete is perfection, and we never quite get there, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. <clears throat> uh, CAD can produce drawings that uh, have overlapping details and imprecise identifications, and this causes misunderstandings. Um, it's also important to stay close to the uh, project during the construction and the occupancy, the early occupancy, to get to know of any problems early, and uh, then address those problems quickly, because the longer you wait, the angrier the owner gets. So it, the, uh, when you're dealing with, a, when you're dealing with a project, you know, a lot of times engineers would nowadays when you're when you're talking about you know there's less and less time um, because there's less and less fee spent on a job they really try to get the design done kind of put it out to bid and hope everything works out okay um, I think that uh, you know they really need to understand and, and get the communication to, to to talk with a contractor to make sure that you know there's there's good communication there and that uh, when the owner gets trained, they should they should have some they should touch base again. They just shouldn't kind of leave it at design and and, and let it go. Yeah, because uh, no news is not necessarily good news, and uh, <laughs> and uh, if something festers and gets uh, people angry, why well, then you're then you're getting into trouble. Um, so have you have you in your uh, uh, expert witness? Uh, uh, projects that you've been um, dealing with. Have you ever gotten, uh, have you started to get more uh, lead projects or, or green building uh, litigation? No, I haven't seen any yet, but uh, I see a lot of warnings in the publications and uh, guaranteeing savings is a risky activity. That's true, that's true. So what do you, what do you think are the, some of the weaknesses of, of the industry today? Well, the pendulum has swung to the point of extreme competitive price pressure 
And that uh, price pressure, that extreme price pressure, produces bad buildings. A strong price pressure on contractors becomes strong pressure to cut corners. And uh, that's a hard thing to police. Uh, inexperienced owners, especially small government entities, feel that they need to squeeze the fees of architects and engineers to serve their taxpayers. Um, and then low-bidding contractors take advantage of the loopholes and the omissions in the drawings and specifications. Um, I think it's clear today that more complete drawings are needed. Uh, uh, all the contractors talk about that. They don't publicize it, but they all gripe about it. Um, someone, uh, I think it was in the Cleveland Engineering Society uh, construction uh, conference, uh, said that uh, $10,000 extra spent on drawings would save $100,000 in construction costs. Wow, that's a payback. And, uh, that's that's a good payback. Uh, in my opinion, I, I think design-build offers some advantages for engineers because contractors know the need for good drawings better than unsophisticated owners, and they're more willing to pay for them adequately and promptly, too. So do you think the uh, the industry is going more towards that design-build? Well, the industry is going towards design-build. Actually, I think uh, the state of Ohio just approved uh, three um, projects for uh, experimental uh, construction procedures uh, varying from the the uh, format that's been law in Ohio for over 100 years, I think. So uh, we'll see how that turns out. But um, um, small government entities are getting bad buildings today, and... Uh, and um, the system isn't working very well for owners. Mm -hmm. So, I guess what are, what are some are, are there any strengths for our industry? Well, I think the strengths are that uh, we're using computers. That that's a big advantage uh, from the way we used to do things. Um, I think uh, generally engineers entering the industry have a better basic fundamental education than they did uh, fifty years ago, and. Uh, Commissioning uh, the commissioning practice to put things in working order and train operators is a big advance. Uh, I think those are the good things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, now I've I've heard from engineers. Yeah. They they some of them who don't really understand what commissioning is. They they uh, think of it more as uh, insurance. But I think that uh, in in general, when you talk about you know getting low bid on the engineering, you get low bid on the contracting. You know, it's frequently asked, where do you where do you pay for the quality in the building? So just to make sure that that, that you get the quality, um, that's uh, where I've heard commissioning come into play. That's a uh, that's a good point. Um, uh, Sal Trena, who was a consulting engineer in uh, in Cleveland for a long time, uh, felt that very strongly that. Uh, the the fundamental part of uh, commissioning originally was balancing, and uh, he was a strong proponent of the balancing contractor being hired directly by the owner mm -hmm. to provide some check and balance on the system. And uh, I think uh, many of us have uh, had situations where we had a balance report with an airflow listed and the thing wasn't working, and we went out and found there was no diffuser in the room. <laughs> uh, so uh, there's a certain there was a certain cynicism about the uh, loyalty of balancers uh, when they were hired by contractors. Um, 
when I worked at Cincinnati Air Conditioning, my first uh, job out of college, uh, every job had 15% set aside for a line item called Startup Test and Balance. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a necessary activity. Yeah. Yeah, I know that even even some of the uh, uh, clients that I work with, uh, whether it be the like the Cleveland Clinic or um, whether it be the Ohio School Facility Commission, I know the, the clinic makes a policy to to hire their testing and balancing agents separately. Um, but I know that the uh, Ohio School Facility Commission is is strongly pushing the uh, the CMs and and the engineers to spec out that the contract or the uh, the balancer be an independent third party because of just exactly the kind of things that you're mentioning. It's a good move. So, what do you think? Uh, what would you would you say is the is a one quality of a great engineer? I think it's imagination. Uh, you need to think about what could go wrong, and how could it be prevented. Uh, you know, many years ago, uh, an architecture professor from the University of Pennsylvania spoke at the Cleveland Engineering Society. Uh, his name was Louis Kahn, and he was a, a famous designer, but. On this particular day, he talked about professional practice, and he uh, he must have been a great teacher. But he smoked he spoke in, in short phrases, and with pauses to let the ideas sink in between each phrase. And the thing that I remember he said that day was, the function of a professional is to ask questions. A machine can answer them. Mm. And uh, that's, uh, that's about it. You really have to raise questions about what's going on, not, uh, not just assume that you do it the same as the last time. <laughs> so with, uh, in your career, you've, you've obviously, I think that uh, we've, we've talked before, that you've, you've had some, some good mentors. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Well, I, uh, I had some good mentors, of course, but uh, I think... Uh, the engineer that I most uh, looked up to and respected uh, in my career was Bob Urban. Uh, Bob was made an ASHRAE fellow because he pioneered the use of variable airflow uh, uh, systems. And uh, uh, he designed the first building that had a successful uh, variable volume system in downtown Cleveland, which I think is now the uh, it's a large tower um, I think it's now called the International Management Group Building. But um, the time I spent working for Bob at Byers, Urban, Klug, and Pittenger was a really unique experience because this was the only organization in my experience in 10 different places I worked uh, where everyone from Bob to the office boy was really truly dedicated to doing the very best work they could. I think perhaps Bob's greatest achievement was establishing that culture in this company. Uh... Another one was uh, Ray Geiger, who was a product of a different era, and he oversaw the mechanical engineering at all the Austin Company's worldwide offices when I worked there. Uh, Ray didn't have an engineering degree, but he had a truly awesome, intuitive understanding of air conditioning theory as well as the practice and operation. And then, of course, I had a lot of other mentors. My first uh, ones were in Cincinnati Air Conditioning, as we talked about before, and then when I was at the Rocket Development Center in Huntsville, Alabama, Johannes Georg Paul taught me German thoroughness and documentation. Um, at Osborne Engineering, there was Homer Borton and Elmer Junkie. And uh, late in my career, uh, I had regular lunches with David Lewin, the geotechnical engineer, and he 
gave me a lot of guidance in professional practice. Mm-hmm. So what, I guess, what, uh, how would you, I mean, I wouldn't say that, that I've had too many mentors in my in my career, and obviously you've you've listed a number of them that that have have uh, you know been able to help you and, and assist you along the way. Is this something that uh, is becoming more and more infrequent, or uh, you know, I guess how could people kind of uh, you know try to find a mentor? Well, I think there's uh, more recognition of the value of mentors today, and. Um, I think most older people in any field enjoy training young people. Um, I, I think there's more of it developing. It's it's not always easy to find, but um, but I think uh, uh, it's becoming more uh, more recognized as the proper way to go. Okay. Um, now for uh, for some for some more uh, lighthearted uh, lighthearted questions. Um, what uh, what do you think? What has been your favorite, uh, whether it be device, environment, or equipment, or technology that that you've seen? Well, I think the thing that's really the major step forward is direct digital controls, uh, um, DDC uh, electronic systems. Uh, they're a great advance over uh, uh, the old pneumatic and. Uh, and uh, low-voltage electric controls that we had, which uh, um, I remember one time Bob uh, Urban talking about a job that we had designed uh, with pneumatic controls, and it had a control panel that was uh, maybe 20 feet long and uh, 6 feet tall and covered with gauges, and Bob, with his mournful expression, said, and they're all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're so much more accurate with direct digital controls. It's a great step forward. So, you know, and and I would uh, I would I would agree with that. I think that uh, even though a lot of uh, a lot of what we find is um, you know the the lack of thoroughness typically on uh, on on a job, you know, when we commission it, we find that they do an, you know, an excellent job at 98% of what they do, but there's this 2% that's really, really gums up the works when it comes to uh, trying to commission a system and, and, and just different settings that, that aren't applied. So I guess the, the, the moral is that DDC offers you a great range of programmability, understandability. Um, you have to be careful about when you program it just to be thorough. And get the right settings. Right. Absolutely. So, but if there's something wrong, it's easier to change than if you had a a twenty foot by six foot panel of pneumatics that didn't quite work. I'm I'm assuming that uh, troubleshooting that would be would be quite the uh, labor intensive exercise. Well, one of the problems with pneumatic controls was that uh, they would act too rapidly. Sometimes uh, I remember one time uh, I found a job uh, went on a job where um, we had a uh, about a 1,300-ton centrifugal chiller, and um, uh, the motor load was swinging wildly from... We were operating on cold water, cold condenser water. It was cold weather. And um, the uh, motor load was swinging all the way from about two or 300 horsepower to 1,300 back and forth really quickly. And uh, the only way we could finally get it to stabilize it was to uh, take a pair of pliers on a pneumatic sensing line and squeeze it. 
and uh, this uh, provided enough restriction to slow down the sensing and uh, <laughs> and calm the system down. Um, a mechanical PID loop, I guess. Is <laughs> well, we didn't have PID loops at that time. <laughs> it was. Um, it's a real problem. Uh, there was another one I was trying to think of that, uh, oh, uh, a chronic problem uh, with pneumatic systems was when you had a 100% outside air system and you had a shutdown in freezing weather and you had to get that system back on the line without being shut down by your freeze stat. And uh, pneumatic systems uh, just didn't have the ability to uh, to come back online very well. It was very tricky with, with a... Uh, DDC system, you can program the thing to very gradually add more outside air mm -hmm. and uh, allow the controls to adapt to it as you bring in more and more outside air. And so it makes it possible to get online now without uh, uh, nuisance shutdowns uh, with pneumatics. Why, if you're trying to do that, you really had a problem. So what what are some of the things that you've been frustrated most with or disappointed with that you thought it was one thing and it turned out to be something completely different, some some equipment that you've used? Well, one thing that was very popular for a brief period, uh, I think this was back in the, um, uh, oh, maybe about uh, the late 60s or so, um, was a three-pipe hydronic system. It had a hot supply and a cold supply and a common return and the uh, of course, you ended up with the heating and the chilled water uh, fighting each other in mild weather, so it wasn't a very good system, but it took a few years for people to figure that out. In the meantime, I think somebody had a patent on it and was trying to collect royalties from all the contractors who used it. Um, another thing was a multi-zone rooftop uh, HVAC unit. Uh, they were used a lot in schools, and... Um, uh, I remember uh, working at one large school job where we had a lot of them, and uh, a college friend of mine uh, was a manufacturer's rep who got the order for some, and he said uh, he went out one warm summer day and he found the furnace going full blast on all these units. And he said, you know, I would have gone broke if the factory hadn't backed me up and uh, and uh, got those things working somehow, but there, there were major, major problems with those things. And because um, basically the furnace was a an on-off operation, and it didn't work very well with the multi-zone unit. <laughs> oh, jeez. So, what uh, out of you know out of the buildings that you've seen done, um, what has been what has been your favorite building, and, and kind of why? Well, it's usually the one that I'm working on at the moment. But, <laughs> uh, one recent one that was fascinating was uh, restoring the old. Uh, mechanically induced vacuum condensate return steam heating system in the uh, Alcazar Hotel. Bringing that thing back to working order was a lot of fun uh, because people had tinkered with it over the years. And the usual mechanics approach uh, was that, well, I don't really know, but let's try this. And uh, <laughs> so over the years, they'd ended up with some problems and they weren't able to heat parts of the building. And... Uh, most people in our industry really don't have any experience. Uh, the people that are left around don't have any experience with these systems anymore. And uh, But they were state-of-the-art around 1920. Uh, I was fortunate to have some books that were written by a fellow named Dan Holahan, who uh, is based on Long Island and who 
has had a lot of experience with those uh, systems in New York City. And uh, so his books gave me a lot of guidance. And um, they were, I, think, I think I would recommend anybody doing that sort of thing. So if you were if you were trapped on a desert island and you had to do engineering, you 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 had to pick one one of your favorite things that you had to have. What would it what would it have to be? A way out. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, fair enough. IP or metric? Well, I think it'll come someday, but uh, not soon. And I think incrementally. Um, you know, we're getting some uh, dimensions now that are, uh, I think, I can think of one pump that has metric uh, dimensions, which are really uh, the metric equivalent of the uh, inches that we normally size pipe for. Huh. Uh, we're drifting in that direction, but it's not going to happen very soon. We have too much invested in our present system. Now, what about, uh, what's your favorite temperature? Oh, I would say about 68 degrees, which is 20 degrees Celsius. <laughs> and uh, did you have any uh, favorite sports? Well, um, I played uh, Sandlot football when I was in high school, but uh, when I went to Case, why, they had a, a good system, and no one was ever cut from a varsity team, uh, and everybody was expected to, to uh, go out. So I became seventh string in the wrestling uh, uh <laughs> In my weight class in the wrestling team. And uh, the heavyweight was Bill Kerslake. He was the first string heavyweight, and he weighed 260 pounds, 265 pounds, which was a giant for his day. Uh, the biggest football tackles were about 220 pounds then. Wow. Uh, and I remember working out with him, and I almost had him pinned one day, and then he just stood up. <laughs> uh, Bill went on to captain the U.S. Olympic wrestling team twice. Oh, yeah? Wow. Yeah. Excellent. So what was the, the uh, I know that there's uh, um, a big rivalry between Case and Western Reserve as far as football goes. But, uh, well, that ended with the uh, two schools merged. But, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, uh, it had been a uh, rivalry, and it was the uh, Thanksgiving Day game for uh, probably 40 or 50 years. And... Um, uh, I think it was uh, 1948 that uh, Case beat Reserve for the first time in, I think it was 27 years. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that was quite a celebration. <laughs> All right. And uh, what is your favorite type of pie? I'm just and leave me with that. Oh, I think mincemeat. <laughs> and you can no longer find it. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking your time uh, to sit down and talk with us. Um, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Well, my website is www.wickedengineering.com. Uh, my email is w-i-c-k-e-n-g, a contraction of Wicked Engineering, at earthlink.net. Uh, my telephone is area code 216-696-5729. And I'm usually here five days each week at uh, room 668 in the Hannah <laughs> Building at 1422 Euclid Avenue in Cleveland. All right. Well, I'll, uh, if you didn't catch that, I'm going to post that on the, uh, the show notes. So uh, we'll be all set. And, uh, again, thank you, uh, thank you for your time, Jim. Well, thank you. All right. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>
All right, we're back. That was a, a great interview, and again, I'd like to thank uh, Jim Wickert for his time. Uh, I'm going to put his contact information, and, and, and if you want to get a hold of Jim, I'll uh, I'll put that all up on in the show notes on the website. If again, this is kind of one of the the one of the types of interviews. You know, they all are not going to be informative. Um, in the sense that it, about a new product that's you know energy efficient or something that's really great or some different way to apply things, sometimes I mean I really think this is valuable information that I want to be able to get out uh, to the world to be able to listen to uh, building professionals, whether it be an engineer, whether it be somebody uh, a contractor or a building maintenance person. If you have anybody that that you know of that would really you'd really like. Um, you know, to hear from or that you know you've talked to them a number of times or they're a mentor to you and they th- really think that what they have to say is really something that you'd love to share with the rest of us, please drop me a line at buildingx.co or uh, email me at matt at buildingx.co. Uh, you can also uh, find me on Twitter at buildingx. Um, and that's, that's pretty much it. Just, just let me know. I mean, we really appreciate those kind of people and, and we want to be able to have, share their experiences, uh, with the rest of the world. So, uh, again, I appreciate everybody listening. I think it's really, really great that, uh, we're, uh, we're building up to this. And if you have, uh, um, you know, any other, any other things that you want to, um, get a hold of me at uh i think there was a i did mention i'll put jim's contact information on the uh, on the show notes at buildingx.co and uh that's pretty much it so until next time know what you build and share what you know Hmm.